Welcome to TIFF Talk, sponsored by Endogastric Solutions, a podcast that interviews physicians and real-life patients about the most common gastrointestinal disorder, GERD, commonly known as chronic acid reflux. Listen to patients and physicians interact, break down the disease from different perspectives, and learn how taking the next step in your treatment can change your life. For our audio listeners, you can see visuals on our YouTube channel at GERD Help. The TIF procedure may or may not be appropriate for your health condition. Only your doctor can explain the benefits and risks of all treatment options. Results may vary. Visit GERDhelp.com for more clinical data. The TIF procedure for reflux was developed by Endogastric Solutions Incorporated. Hello, everybody, and welcome to our TIFF Talk. I'm Andrea Millers with Endogastric Solutions, and I'm so excited to have you here today. We have got a very special guest uh, here, Dr. Willie Melvin. Uh, Thank you, Dr. Melvin, for being here today. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Another familiar face. And we also have Wendy Prophet. She's part of the team here at Endogastric Solutions joining us as well. I do want to give a little introduction to Dr. Willie Melvin. He is a board certified general surgeon at the Surgical Clinic Rutherford in Smyrna, Tennessee. He earned his medical degree from a Harry Medical College in Nashville and completed residencies at St. Joseph's Hospital in Houston, Texas and Vanderbilt University Medical Center in Nashville. Dr. Melvin is a fellow of the American College of Surgeons and the American Society of Metabolic and Bariatric Surgeons and holds membership in the Society of Laparoscopic Surgeons, Society of Robotic Surgeons, Society of American Gastrointestinal and Endoscopic Surgeons, American Society of Veterans Administration Surgeons, and the Southeastern Surgical Congress. Welcome, Dr. Melvin, and thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. So, let, yeah, let's go ahead and start. Uh, let's just kind of set the, the the floor right now and talk about what is GERD. You know, what could patients potentially be feeling, or what are the symptoms that they would have if they were suffering from GERD? So, in broad strokes, in an overview. GERD stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease. And so to start off, it's important to understand that we all have reflux. Um, And it's when it's pathologic or when there's problems with it that people start to have symptoms. And so in a normal day, we may reflux dozens of times a day. The alkaline nature of our centralizes the acid, the upright position uses gravity to pull the reflux down. There's a valve mechanism, a normal lower esophageal sphincter valve mechanism that helps with the reflux uh, in a normal situation. When uh, there's increased pressure and the opening in the diaphragm called the hiatus is large and the stomach pushes into the chest or the valve mechanism of the lower esophageal sphincter doesn't work normal, then people can have reflux that doesn't get cleared and that presents with more clinical problems such as heartburn, indigestion, uh, retrosternal or behind the sternum uh, discomfort. Uh, There's certain things that contribute to worsening of those symptoms. And when we talk about 
diagnosing and management, we talk about starting off with dietary adjustments, behavioral lifestyle changes, and then we introduce medication to help neutralize the acid so that we can control those, those situations. Today, in addition to discussing uh, GERD and what that means and diagnosing it, we're also going to talk about, in addition to the non-operative management, we're going to talk about surgical management and kind of what that looks like and who's a candidate for it and how it can help you. Perfect. Thank you. So talk to me about symptoms. What are the symptoms that they normally feel? Maybe talk a little bit because we get a lot of questions about typical symptoms versus atypical symptoms. Um, and sometimes some people don't even know that they are suffering from from GERD, right? If they're having um, asthma attacks sometimes or some or silent um, reflux, maybe can you talk a little bit about that? Certainly, there's a spectrum of reflux symptoms, and that can be something as obvious as choking or aspirating or heartburn or retrosternal chest pain all the time, irrespective of what you eat. Some people say, they can drink water and have reflux and have symptoms. The other spectrum is you can have people who have what's called silent GERD. Uh, that is to say that they're having these small aspiration events or these small reflux events that they're not even aware of, but they're aware of the consequences of it. There are certain individuals who will present to their ENT doctor or to their dentist with evidence of uh, enamel changes in their mouth from the acid reflux or respiratory or sinus problems uh, from the reflux. And so those are other presentations that reflect that they're they're having trouble with reflux. Yeah, right. Thank you. And um, you talked a little bit about uh, lifestyle modifications. And before we go into um, all of the different treatment options, can you maybe talk about medical therapy? Because I think that is probably the first um, course of action that some patients do without even seeing a doctor, right? To your point, a lot of people have GERD and they'll just go grab TOMS or PPIs over the counter and kind of self-medicate themselves. Can you talk a little bit about um, medication and how that should be appropriately used if they are um, having GERD and, and GERD more frequently? And so when we first see a patient, we talk about uh, medical management, we talk about lifestyle changes, and that's when we take a step back and talk about the normal physiologic reflux and the thing that your body normally does to manage it. Those are things that we do from a lifestyle modification. You elevate the head of the bed. You don't eat after a certain time so that you don't have a full stomach. Uh, when you do lay down, um, you eat smaller meals so that you don't overeat and keep the stomach full that encourages those reflux symptoms. There are certain foods such as caffeines or chocolates or alcohol that can cause that lower esophageal sphincter to be even weaker and contribute to more uh, reflux symptoms. And so we start off with both dietary and lifestyle changes such as that. If that improves their symptoms and they're better, so good. If not, then we start to introduce medication that will decrease the acid uh, in the stomach. And so the good and bad thing about over-the-counter medications is sometimes the patients will self-diagnose Dr. Google at WebMD, <laughs> and they will treat themselves, but they're treating the symptoms and not really understanding the whole pathophysiology. And so we like to try to make sure that they understand that most of the PPIs are not a PRN or as-needed medication. Most of the time, the PPIs have to get into your bloodstream and have to be at a certain level to have a long-term effect. And so 
certainly you have a little indigestion, you take a little purple pill, you feel a little bit better, but that really doesn't manage uh, the reflux the way we want. Now, if it is a reflux and you have heartburn and there's changes in the esophagus, after you've been on the medication for a week or two or a month and your symptoms improve, then that's well. However, if your symptoms return, then you have to talk about long-term use for three months or six months at a time. If they return again, then you might want to consider surgery. Okay, thank you for explaining that. And then before we, I do see all the questions popping up, so don't worry, we're going to get to them. But before we go to that, I do want to talk about more, a little more serious, um, or it's, I guess it's all serious, but what can happen uh, if, or I should say, what can happen with unmanaged GERD? What are the, what are the, what can it lead to, if you will? Sure. We alluded to the fact that some people will have chronic sinusitis. They can have uh, pneumonias from the aspiration to the lung. They can have dental caries and enamel disruption from the acid reflux on, on the teeth. Uh, the, the GI system goes from the mouth to the anus. And so each system has a certain lining that protects it and has a certain function. The stomach lining is designed to make and hold acid. The esophageal lining is not as robust. And so a long-term consequence of acid reflux or the acid exposure to the esophagus can literally cause the, the cells of the esophagus to change forms. And so it goes from the normal cell to something that's more scarred or more columnar. And so what happens at that point is you can even degenerate into uh, Barrett's esophagus or esophageal changes such as that, and subsequently even to esophageal cancer. And so the long-term effects of an untreated, undiagnosed reflux uh, can be more severe. Uh, thank you for that. I'm going to go ahead and pass it over to Wendy because I do see a lot of questions popping up and I, I'd like to get the, through those this time around. So Wendy, take it away. Thanks, Andrea. So we'll start out, I'm, I'm kind of going to go down my list. There may be, a, a, I'll try and incorporate what I can as far as your talk track has been so far, you know, in talking about symptoms. Dottie has several questions and I'm, I'm going to kind of touch on as many of them as I can. Um, she's, she's really um, asking mostly about regurgitation, uh, about, you know, her diet. She said she's having discomfort no matter what she eats. Um, but that her ears are also hurting. Is that something that's indicative of, uh, of GERD? It can be. Um, you have to understand that sometimes people will reflux that acid just a little bit to the lower third or a little bit more to the mid third or even to the posterior pharynx, to the back of the throat. And as you know, this eustachian tube connects to the back of the throat. And when you have all that burning and acid in the back of the throat, you can sometimes present with sinusitis, or uh, problems with your ears, ears infection as well. Okay, thank you for that. Um, next up, uh, we, we have some questions around dysmotility. Um, Aram or Aram, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing, um, is, is wondering how to treat dysmotility without curing GERD. Treat dysmotility without treating GERD. And so when we talk about management, or medical management, we certainly mentioned adjusting the diet, adjusting the portions, not eating too late, not laying down too soon after you eat. And the purpose for the initial line, the first line of medication is to decrease the amount of acid, whether that be in an H2 blocker or a proton pump inhibitor. By decreasing the acid, you're still having some reflux, 
but it's not as acidic and so the symptoms aren't as bad. Another form of treatment is called a prokinetic. The prokinetic is a medication that causes the stomach to squeeze and empty. The thought process, if the stomach is empty, then there's less or more empty, then there's less content to reflux. And so currently the really only prokinetic that we use uh, routinely is called Reglan. And so that's the, the gold standard for prokinetic, prokinesis. Uh, there are other medications that can be used that are off-label or such as erythromycin is an antibiotic that also functions as a prokinetic. Uh, Domperidon is another medication that can be used as a, as a prokinetic. Okay. But it's Thank important you. to understand that the, even the prokinesis, the, the increased motility, is only part of the old paradigm of treatment. Got it. Okay. Um, we have uh, Sharice asking, what medication helps with slow motility when you have scleroderma in your stomach? And so there are certain conditions, certain diseases that are neuropathic diseases of the stomach. If the stomach is not emptying and it's sitting there, then sometimes that contributes to reflux symptoms. It's not a classic presentation for GERD. There may not be a problem with the lower esophageal sphincter or the hiatus, but just because the stomach doesn't empty, it then stays full, and that full stomach then causes more reflux. And so they are symptomatically they can be related, but the treatment, the treatment is different. And for that particular situation, I, I also uh, would recommend the prokinetic medications that we just spoke about. Very good, thanks. I have Tamicha asking, uh, what medication or over-the-counter remedies can I use for esophagus spasms? They're causing issues with my heart and I now have elevated blood pressure. So that's a real complex but very good question because if you can think of a trolley horse, when there's irritation in the skeletal muscle from uh, running or something of that nature, that muscle spasms because it's irritated. The esophageal lining is a muscle. The stomach lining is a muscle. And so if there's reflux that causes irritation in the esophagus, sometimes that presents as esophageal spasm. The esophagus being a muscle can squeeze so tightly that it can cause discomfort um, and chest pain. As you're working up someone who has, quote, chest pain, part of the differential diagnosis would include certainly the heart, but you also have to think about uh, the esophagus and or reflux symptoms as contributing to those presentation. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dr. Melvin. Okay, Andrea, I'm going to toss it back to you as most of our questions following are regarding procedural uh, interventions. So if we can go ahead and cover that, we'll we'll do another round of questions regarding those in Thank just a second. Thanks, Wendy. Thank you, Wendy. So Dr. Uh, Melvin, why don't we go into, you know, kind of what are the options after medical therapy um, for GERD? But actually, let's start, let's, uh, let's first talk about diagnostic testing to determine if someone actually has GERD first. Can you walk through what that looks like uh, in your practice? Absolutely. And so the first step would be what's called an EGD, esophageal gastrodenoscopy. The first thing I want to do is look at the esophagus and we can take samples or biopsies, check to see if there is evidence of reflux, Barrett's esophagus changes, look at the stomach, make sure that the stomach functions well and squeezes normally, make sure that the pylorus is normal in its function, 
retroflex or look back on the scope to look at the hiatus and see if there is a hiatal hernia. If so, measure it and determine how big that is. Uh, that's the first step. Sometimes concurrently, uh, because we're anticipating altering the anatomy, sometimes concurrently, we will also do a manometric pressure. That is a special balloon with transducers, and I can make sure that the esophagus is squeezing in an anti-grade manner from mouth to stomach. You can have, as your uh, questioner pointed out, esophageal spasm, and so symptoms can also be just a dyskinetic or an abnormal squeezing esophagus. And so part of the evaluation, in addition to looking at the scope and possibly doing biopsies, we'll also do pressure measurements of the esophagus to document that esophageal motility is normal. And then lastly, equally important, is what's a pH probe monitor. So we put a little probe sensor in the esophagus above the LES, and that stays there for about four days. And it communicates with an external box that measures the actual number of reflux and you press a button to associate your symptoms. And then this calculation will associate the symptoms with the amount of acid reflux and then give us what's called a Demisa score. Give us a score as to that, the degree to which you're having reflux. And so with all of that information, then we sit down with the patient, we explain the outcome and determine whether or not surgical option is reasonable. Perfect, thank you. Let's talk a little bit about the different options for uh, treating the treatment of GERD, if you will, the surgical options. Um, before we go into how the TIF works, maybe talk about the different options that are available today. Absolutely, and so it's important first to understand the normal physiology of reflux and how most people clear that reflux without anything. And then pathologically, they start to have symptoms. We try to manage with lifestyle changes and medication. And then thirdly, understanding that, then we talk about what are the things that we can do to reconstruct that anatomy? What are the things that we can do to make that anatomy function more normally? And so uh, historically, uh, Dr. Nissan uh, described recreating the valve by taking a part of the stomach and wrapping it around the esophagus. It's called a Nissan fundoplication. The Nissan fundoplication is pretty much the gold standard in terms of the outcomes that you try to compare to. That's a surgical procedure. It can be done as an open procedure. We can do it laparoscopically. It can be done robotically. The shortcomings of the Nissen fundoplication is that it sometimes can cause problems with swallowing or dysphagia. It sometimes can cause what's called gas bloat, where you can get air in, but you can't get it out. And so the stomach gets large and discomfort. Um, and so that led to Dr. Toupee describing what's called a Toupee fundoplication mm -hmm. or 270. Dr. Nissen described a 360 degree wrap. Uh, Dr. Toupee described a 270 degree wrap. It had the advantage of not completely obstructing the lower esophagus, but at the disadvantage of not really acting as an anti-reflux procedure as well. And if you do Dr. Google WebMD, you'll see there are other fundoplications, depending on the approach and depending on how much of the stomach is used. You can have a door fundoplication, you can have a Bell's fundoplication, a heel fundoplication. So each one of these are different themes that try to recreate that valve mechanism. What we've evolved to is uh, understanding what the analogy I use is a, is a doorway, a threshold. And so the hiatus or the opening in the diaphragm is kind of that door jam, that, that threshold. And if that's too big, then the door won't close properly. So part of this management is first to close up that hiatus 
around the esophagus and manage that threshold. The second is to fix the door so that it seats well and make it the right size. The advantage of the transoral incisionless fundoplication is it really is more physiologic in its reconstruction. It has more of a valve effect, and it's also essentially a 270-degree wrap. And so in our approach in managing these, we manage the hiatal hernia, we manage the fundoplication transorally, and that for us and our patients have the best outcome. That's fantastic. Thank you for bringing uh, the hiatal hernia into play because I was going to mention that, but you already did that for us. So talk to us a little bit about the TIF procedure. How does it, uh, how does it work? So there are basically two uh, transoral incisionless fundoplications. There's a C-TIF and a straight TIF. A C-TIF is a complete TIF. That's where you understand the whole mechanism and you evaluate the patient, determine that they have both a hiatal hernia and an anti-reflux uh, need. And so that's a procedure where this machine, it's, uh, the uh, endogastric solution machine, the scope goes on the inside of it. You, there are videos online that you can look for these. And by doing that, the scope is the, the eyes and we watch the machine as we reconnect uh, and, and gather the tissue to form a fundoplication on the inside. It's not unlike what we see uh, in the monitor, the, the screen behind us. And it's really creating kind of that valve effect. Um, and so that combination of the high learning repair and the TIF, that's what's called a C-TIF. A straight TIF, for those rare individuals who don't seem to have a hiatal hernia, but do have reflux. And so the straight TIF is just an endoscopic procedure where you get the fundoplication uh, without the need for a hiatal hernia repair. Perfect, thank you. Uh, I'm gonna pass it to Wendy. I do see a couple of questions that, are, uh, that we could probably ask now at this point. So, Wendy. Yeah, absolutely, thank you. So um, what are, Sharon is asking, um, what reason would make a person with GERD not qualified for the TIF treatment? So there are certain things that can mimic fundoplication or mimic uh, reflux disease that are not. And that's the purpose for the evaluation of the workup. If you have uh, achalasia, if you have esophageal spasms, but you don't have actual reflux, then that would mean that there's no benefit to doing an anti-reflux procedure. Okay, very good. Um, also, a so um, Aram, who had asked earlier about motility, had a two-phased question. He said, you know, my, my the second part to my question is, a patient has dysmotility of 70%, swallow fail, a uh, half centimeter hernia. Which solution is better, the 270 Fundo or a Lynx device? And so we won't spend a lot of time talking about the Lynx but understand that the links is an alternative to recreating that valve mechanism. And so it's one company's interpretation of a solution. And so the understanding is that the endpoint is the same to reconstruct that valve mechanism. Got it. Okay. Um, also, I have moderate reflux. When do you suggest jumping from a medication to a procedure? A lot of it has to do with lifestyle changes. And so it, it's difficult for me as a surgeon to say, oh, it's time to go to surgery. We talk about things. We see where you've been. We see where you are. We see where you want to be. And that's really what it comes down to. And so 
I have patients that come in and they've dealt with it for 20 years and they've had enough. I have patients that had it for two years and they don't want to be on medication for the rest of their lives. So everybody's different. It's an individual decision that we participate in. Very good, thanks. Do you have anything um, specific to recommend when, you know, we ask about, we just asked this question, but when do patients need to start thinking about coming in to see somebody? What's not normal as far as when they're experiencing symptoms? You know, yes, we all have, as you pointed out, reflux. We all have symptoms sometimes. When is it at a point where they need to start having a discussion with somebody? Essentially when they ask that question. And so the, the, the more involved answer is when it's disruptive to lifestyle changes. And so you've tried everything you can and you can't get the relief that you want. You have to uh, consciously think about the time of day. What are you going to eat? You know, what are you not going to eat? Uh, your selection of food is more limited. Uh, you can't enjoy things the way you used to. And so that's when you start to think, you know, what options do I have? And that's when the conversation begins. Thank you very much. Uh, we have Matt asking if there are any side effects of having a procedure done to treat GERD or are all the treatments pretty routine? So I'm, I'm presuming that Matt is referring to all of the different procedures that we've listed. And certainly each one of those uh, does have its own side effect and risk associated with it. I'll focus on the TIF itself. Uh, one of the consequences, unfortunate, is uh, uh, a transient period of time of dysphagia, where because we're recreating and operating on that area and there's a little bit of edema, some patients will experience for a week or two uh, difficulty with solid phase uh, dysphagia or difficulty with swallowing. Invariably, uh, they require, sometimes require another procedure like an endoscopy and dilation, but ultimately they're able to tolerate. Okay. Very good, thank you. Um, we have, uh, oh, Aram is back. Do you think I could be a good candidate for TIF considering my dysmotility and hernia existence? So that's a difficult question to answer on a TIF talk. <laughs> There's a lot more going on there. It's not straightforward. Um, and so certainly we talk about presentations. Some people who have a dysmotility disorder, their symptoms are more related to that dysmotility disorder and less about the lower esophageal sphincter or abnormal functioning uh, valve. And so those are the things that, you know, workup and evaluation would be determined, uh, whether the candidacy or not. Well, I'm so glad you brought your A game tonight because I'm telling you our audience did. These questions are phenomenal. They really so, are. And I, I trust I, I, and pray that, that more that are listening that aren't necessarily writing in are getting something from it. Absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> so impressed. Um, okay, I have Andrew asking, what types of side effects can I expect with a TIF? You already just went through that. And do I really need a hernia repair? My hernia is just one and a half centimeters. And so that's a subjective number. Uh, it's really difficult to, um, you know, to say it's easy to say it's only one and a half centimeters. Well, that's one and a half centimeters larger than it needs to be. <laughs> um, and then, so that's almost an inch. It's almost, uh, you know, three quarters of an inch. And so... The short answer is we have the best outcome if we can identify a hiatal hernia and then uh, the anti-reflux part of it, the patients do much better. Certainly there are patients that qualify for a straight TIF. And if uh, your surgeon, your uh, gastroenterologist determined that the hiatal hernia is not significant enough, 
to be repaired, then certainly you'd be candidate for a straight fit, straight tiff. Very good. All right. Uh, Bessie asks, do I need a motility study for a six centimeter hiatal hernia? That's a really good question. Uh, is it Betsy or Bessie? Bessie. 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 So um, the reason that's a good question is in order for me to measure the esophageal motility, in order for me to measure the acid reflux with the Bravo, uh, the pH probe, uh, I, it presumes some degree of a normal anatomy. When you have a six centimeter hiatal hernia, invariably most of your stomach is in your chest, then it's not always easy to get an accurate read of the amount of reflux. And so sometimes that pH probe, that information is not as useful. And even measuring the esophageal pressures is not as easy. Uh, it is obvious that if you have a hiatal hernia at six centimeters in size, that certainly needs to be repaired. And perhaps afterwards in a stage procedure, you can then have the probe and the manometric study to determine if an anti-reflux procedure is, is indicated. Interesting. Thank you. Okay. Um, we have John asking, what is the upper limit of size of hernia that can be repaired prior <laughs> to, which I think probably I think you, you actually back. just answered. These are really <laughs> yeah. good questions. Uh, yeah. The short answer is there is none that are too big. Um, we literally have operated on individuals where their entire stomach is in their hiatus. Uh, that is obviously very challenging. And as Bessie mentioned in her question, you know, when all of your stomach is in your chest, it doesn't do any good to try to measure soft gel pressures or pH probe. And so in that setting, the first step is to try to restore some semblance of normal anatomy. And that is to bring the stomach back below the diaphragm repair that a hiatus around the esophagus um, and then kind of go from there. Very good. Last but not least, uh, and then Andre, I'll turn it back to you. Haley says, uh, Dr. Melvin, what do your TIF patients say when you first follow up with them after the procedure? Thank you. <laughs> they say thank you. I love that. They say I haven't been able to sleep in years. I haven't been able to eat in years. Um, it's, it's, um, it's satisfying uh, to be able to help someone the way we are able to do. Excellent, thank you. What, just out of curiosity, what uh, what is your protocol? When do you see the patients postoperatively? So I see them the next morning. Uh, they're usually in the hospital for a day or two. Uh, we have a perioperative management team that preoperatively evaluates them for anesthesia. It's at that meeting at the PAT that the patient also meets with the nutritionist and go over what to expect in terms of a diet. And then in the hospital and the next morning of, of surgery, we determine if they can tolerate liquids uh, and therefore start their, their, their diet. We determine if their pain is managed. If those two criteria are met, then the patient goes home. And then we usually see them a week or two after that discharge. And then we have a schedule of six to eight weeks to three months uh, as they progress their diet. Excellent. Thanks. All right, Andre, I'll hand it back Fantastic. to you. Fantastic. What great questions we've gotten from all of the people watching. So thank you everyone for asking your questions. Uh, I do want to have you talk a little bit about your post-op kind of care. You did mention briefly about the diet, maybe go elaborate a little bit about the diet. And then also a lot of questions come up on when can I go back to work? 
Can I go back to exercise? I lift weights. Can I do that? Can I do yoga? So maybe just kind of talk about your post-op um, protocol. Certainly one of the objectives of doing this surgery is to normalize activity, to give you your life back. And for so long, people have gradually not been able to do the things that they want or eat the things that they want. And so it didn't happen overnight. And so it's not going to return overnight. And so we do try to emphasize the gradual progression. Um, I leave the dietary discussion to my specialist. Uh, Vicki is our nutritionist and she is excellent um, and she's accessible. And so certainly we have a criteria and a sequence, but if people have more questions or, or they close to do, we have resources for that. I simplify it to say that, you know, when a baby starts off, they drink milk and they thicken it in its cereal, and then you introduce one food at a time. And that's kind of the gestalt of post-operative advancement of diet. Uh, in terms of activities, it's minimally invasive, but at the same time, depending on the size of the hiatal hernia, that repair has to heal. It has to scar in. If there's increased intra-abdominal pressure or straining or coughing too soon, then that can lead to a recurrence of the hernia, and we try to avoid that and manage that as best we can. Patients are walking on the day of surgery. They're walking and, and ambulating and, and moving around within a few days. We usually ask them to stay off work for at least a week, maybe two. Depending on how strenuous it is, they can go back to work within two weeks. As far as exercising, we usually use low impact, cardio, um, walking, uh, treadmill, but nothing, nothing with uh, increased intra-abdominal pressure or weightlifting or straining. Okay, perfect. When can they go back to doing that? It just depends. On they can go back to resuming. We talk about that in the post-op period, uh, moderate activity for the first couple of weeks, and then we kind of individualize and customize their return. We ask them, what is it that you want to do? We say yes or no. And yeah. then we give them a plan of when they'll be able to introduce that. Fantastic. Wonderful. Well, thank you for that. I think also it's the food part. It's always it's also listening to your body, right? If if your Absolutely. body's telling, you, that's what yeah. I've heard a doctor say. Yeah. Um, you know, sometimes some patients want to just they're like, I'm so hungry, I just want to get back, and you're like, No, <laughs> please yeah. be a good patient. <laughs> we, we really emphasize that. That's a really good point. And so, yes, listen to your body, but you have to temper that with is it time yet? And certainly if we're creatures of habit and we want to do things that we will always have, and if you do something too fast, too soon, then sometimes that will cause more pressure, more discomfort, and it'll delay your recovery. And so we try to balance those. Yeah. Yeah. And I see there's a lot of uh, groups on Facebook, um, TIF Procedure for Acid Reflux group, and, and obviously our group. And I hear, I, I read some of the things like, why, why am I having problems swallowing? Why? And, you know, they're not following the diet appropriately or something like that. So that's one of the main reasons why I think this format and having the ability for patients to come on and ask those questions is really great. They get to hear from an expert um, if, you know, and then obviously recommend them to go to their doctor and ask their doctor. Right. Absolutely. So, yeah. So. You've done quite a few of these TIF procedures. Um, what, uh, I know Wendy asked you, what do your patients say? Um, you know, do you have any special stories or anything of any patients that have come to you and it was just like life-changing for them after having their TIF procedure? Or are they all that great? <laughs> Literally tons. Um, everyone is different, but everyone has the, the common theme is 
for the longest, I didn't realize I had an option and I didn't realize how bad I felt until I started feeling better. Um, the one that really touches me is I'm able to sleep through the night without waking up choking. And so that's, that's, you know, uh, the, the bottom line, that's what it comes yeah. down to is, is having people be able to enjoy themselves and rest and enjoy life and eat. That's what it's about. Well, you know, interestingly enough, I'll, I'll jump in for a second. One of the immediate um, symptoms that I have seen people discuss, you know, just immediate relief on when they wake up um, is that that feeling in their throat, whether it's the regurgitation or that that globus, you know, feeling like you've just got a lump in there. They they often note that it is immediately resolved. Do you experience yes, that? Absolutely. And it is. Um, a caustic exposure. You have acid poured in the back of your throat. Um, and sometimes that can get into your lungs. You can cough, you can aspirate, you get your sinuses, but sometimes it just irritates the mucosal lining at the back of your throat. And, and that inflammatory response makes it feel like there's something in the back of your throat. And so once that goes away, then that sensation of fullness and inflammation is no longer there. Yeah. Awesome. awesome. Well, before we conclude tonight, Dr. Melvin, I just want to give you an opportunity to let everyone that's know that's watching or, or give your words of advice to a patient that would be out there suffering from GERD. What would your, you know, your words of wisdom be for them today? Thank you for the opportunity. You know, it's a different time. 2022, uh, patients are more savvy, they're more educated, they have access to more information. Uh, they're signed on because they had symptoms or know someone that had symptoms and they're looking for a solution. And so I encourage you to read and I encourage you to get information and then come to me or come to your primary doctor to clarify, discuss options uh, and kind of understand what's going on. I think that's what's important. Certainly, you know, just like the warning label on most medication, you know, can cause hair loss. Yeah, we, there's a <laughs> lot of things out there. Uh, just be careful. And uh, I encourage you to do your research and then have a conversation with your doctor. Fantastic. Thank you. And if you are in the Smyrna, Tennessee area, uh, you can find Dr. Willie Melvin. Uh, and if you are not, uh, we do have a website called GERDhelp.com. We do have a physician locator on there. All you have to do is type in your zip code or state, and you'll be able to find a TIF-trained physician near you. Um, but before we conclude, I do want to thank you all for joining us this evening. Dr. Melvin, as always, it's always a pleasure to have you on here. I know, obviously, people um, that have been asking a lot of questions um, and, you know, really respect your um, expertise as we do here at Endogastric Solutions. So um, thank you everybody for joining us this evening. Thank you, Wendy, for getting all those questions in. Um, and we will catch you all next time. So thank you again, Dr. Melvin. And thanks everyone. Have a great evening. Thank you very much. If you are suffering from chronic acid reflux and want more information, please visit GERDhelp.com or download our GERD Help mobile app. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of TIFF Talk. Leave your questions and comments on our social media at GERD Help. Live well, GERD free.